All right, Seem, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on here. Yeah, I'm glad to talk with you as well. All right, so you are big into so many biohacking things. It's super exciting. I really love that realm of health, and it's something I'm trying to get more and more into. I think it's something that is really important for my listeners to talk about as well. So before we get going down that route too much, can you tell my listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, well, uh, I'm a... I'm an author and uh, like a content creator as well as a speaker from Estonia. And uh, I talk mostly about this biohacking uh, where it involves things like health optimization, nutrition, uh, diet, resilience, uh, sleep, and uh, everything just related to improving your biology and uh, health in the making. And uh, yeah, I've written several books about uh, this topic. Um, A lot about intermittent fasting is one of my main areas of focus. Uh, but also things like sauna, cold, exercise, uh, even like stoicism or like philosophy and uh, yeah, the immune system. So everything uh, related to just improving uh, your your health. Yeah. And all of that's become more and more of a hot topic these days with all the COVID stuff running around and it's people are starting to learn that all of these systems hold hands with your immune system and how important it is to take care of all of that in so many different facets. So uh, it's really great. You actually just came out with a new book about immunity, correct? Yeah, it's uh, co-authored with uh, Dr. James Antonio, and he's a pretty renowned author. Uh, He's also like a cardiovascular researcher and uh, editor in uh, British Medical Journal. So yeah, he's pretty uh, renowned. And uh, we co-authored The Immunity Fix. It's about, like I said, kind of bridging the gap between your immune system and every every other system in your body, like the endocrine system, uh, your circadian rhythms, uh, your metabolism, your metabolic health. So yeah, it's kind of gives you an understanding about how the immune system works and how to improve it uh, based upon these different uh, factors. Awesome. Well, before we dive in today, I think we need to catch my listeners a little bit up to speed because we want to talk about metabolic autophagy. What is it? It seems like something that's super deep. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, like metabolic autophagy is uh, the, one of the titles of one of my books. And uh, autophagy itself is uh, like a biological process during which uh, your uh, cells clean up uh, from uh, different like uh, infectious particles, just the junk and the debris. So uh, it is involved in like longevity and anti-inflammatory you know results so you can lower like oxidative stress you can eliminate different pathogens it's also involved in the immune system functioning and uh, like fat burning so it is a pretty central component to like just healthy cellular functioning and uh, like research finds that you know autophagy can be linked to many uh, chronic diseases like you know insulin resistance or uh, even accelerated aging whereas uh, sufficient autophagy is the opposite. It kind of helps to promote longevity and uh, just general health and well-being. Right. And I think the first time I ever heard the word cellular autophagy, it was when it came to fasting. So it's become kind of a buzzword in the fasting space. Many people talk about uh, cellular turnover in the fasting space, and that's part of the reason they're doing it. But there are other ways to achieve it as well, correct? 
about autophagy from fasting and uh, it is a very potent way of activating it but there is not like very clear-cut research about fasting and autophagy per se there's actually a lot more research about autophagy during exercise which is uh, one of the maybe second best uh, ways of uh, achieving that or even like if you if you were to consider like the like the uh, relative amount of autophagy you get then like during exercise your body is probably experiencing more autophagy than it is when you are fasting because like the energy stress is uh, higher during exercise you're exerting energy uh, you're burning through um, like these like glycogen and other resources so it is imposing more stress on the body and the the stress response itself just uh, activates this autophagy process but there are also other similar stressors like um, the heat that you can do with, like with the sauna uh, or other forms of uh, maybe hot yoga or something that can also turn on some aspects of autophagy as well as uh, like these different uh, dietary polyphenols and phytonutrients like uh, coffee uh, green tea you know, uh, resveratrol, dark pigmented uh, berries and vegetables, they have these uh, compounds that uh, also turn on autophagy. So this is a really interesting subject because you've, you've, you are hearing this more and more in the health space, people talking about um, stress and things like that. And, and it kind of goes both ways. You hear people talking about too much stress, but there are also good stressors as well, correct? Yeah, yeah, like stress itself uh, has a negative connotation, but um, it's not inherently bad. It's, uh, it is bad only if it becomes chronic. So, um, you know, by definition, stress is just an imbalance in the body's homeostasis and in the inner balance. So if you go out of balance for a short period of time, like an acute stressor during exercise or during the sauna or with fasting or something, then... Uh, it, it can actually have like a strengthening effect that is uh, improves your metabolic health, uh, increases your fitness, increases resilience, uh, strengthens the immune system. And it only becomes a problem or it can lead to disease if it uh, becomes chronic or if it becomes an overbearing stressor, like uh, over, you know, moderate exercise is amazing for your health, but overtraining can be uh, harmful. And uh, this describes like this, uh, another uh, biological phenomenon uh, of hormesis, uh, like a, a small amount of stress or a toxin can actually be beneficial for the body, whereas in large amounts, uh, it's, it can be harmful. Absolutely. I can attest to that. I have been down the road of over-exercising and probably overdoing it in many ways. And I think that was way too much stress for my body. Uh, so let's dive into a couple of these things then. Uh, I, I mean, as far as sauna and stuff goes, is there a certain type of sauna? You hear all of these different things about red light, uh, infrared saunas, or regular traditional sauna, what is actually the, the best way to get the most out of your sauna experience? Yeah, well, um, it's uh, a lot of the research has been done on the traditional sauna, like the fin Finnish sauna with the wooden uh, heated stove. And uh, the way that works is by just elevating or raising the temperature uh, around you in the room and uh, your body temperature will start to rise as a result of that. And, uh, as your body temperature starts rising, then your body releases these heat shock proteins that are uh, like stress, uh, stress molecules that begin to deal with the stress from the heat and try to mitigate the damage from the heat. And these heat shock proteins also have other health benefits like they uh, reduce inflammation, they uh, repair misfolded proteins, they also stimulate autophagy and uh, yeah, just generally increase the resilience. 
so that's one of the benefits of the heat. Other benefits include uh, better uh, insulin sensitivity, uh, lower blood sugar, uh, as well as it, it can be helpful for uh, lowering inflammation, like arthritic inflammation or uh, neuronal inflammation. So all those things uh, can benefit from that. And like the other, you know, most popular way of doing the sauna is the infrared sauna. And uh, generally, the say you can get the same benefits from the infrared sauna, but uh, there's also the unique effect of the uh, red light wavelengths from the infrared sauna. And those red light wavelengths can essentially uh, penetrate uh, deeper into your tissue and uh, into your like uh, tendons and ligaments. And there they will help with uh, collagen synthesis, uh, regeneration, and uh, yeah, like also more, more visceral uh, effect. So uh, the infrared sauna works by directly heating uh, your body from the inside out, whereas the uh, traditional sauna uh, heats the air around you and raises your body temperature as a result of that. So they are, like the research both uh, shows that uh, you get the same similar health benefits uh, from uh, the regular sauna and the infrared sauna, but the, with the infrared sauna, you get uh, the additional, like the red light uh, wavelength benefits. I gotcha. And so the the red light has become kind of a big thing. I know you hear lots and lots of people are now putting like red lights at their desk and all sorts of things like that. Does it have to be warm for people to get a benefit from it? What do you think of these like stationary lights that people have now that they're using uh, just in their home or office? Yeah, the red light uh, therapy devices, uh, they they don't uh, work uh, on the same uh, premise as like the sauna. So uh, like the red light light itself uh, has uh, very beneficial effects on the body as well. And uh, like primarily by regulating the circadian rhythms as well as you, you know, you can still, if you have like a small device, like a handheld device. Uh, so I actually have like one of the devices here, uh, this uh, small device and uh, it does, it doesn't get hot. Uh, it doesn't like raise your body temperature as a sauna, but it does, you know, go into your uh, tissues and uh, still have a effect. Uh, so the red light wavelengths have similar effects like the lower inflammation, they speed up recovery, promote uh, like collagen synthesis, uh, reduce uh, skin deterioration. And uh, yeah, like just the, this rejuvenative effect and uh, you know, primarily if 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 the if the light goes through your eyes then it's also going to regulate the circadian rhythms which are basically the day and night cycles of your body and uh usually we would get some uh, you know red light and uh infrared light from uh, the sunlight uh, but uh you know there's not that's not always possible because of like seasonality or uh, because of you being indoors then uh you know we miss out on some of that uh, red light and the problem is that uh, we get too much of the blue light from our devices and uh, you know screens all the time. So the blue light is also that we get from the sun naturally, but if it gets out of balance with the red light, the uh, like it, we create this artificial environment where we're exposed to all this blue light all the time, and that can uh, lead to like uh, macular degeneration, causes oxidative stress um, both in the eyes and the skin as well as uh, disrupt like the body's uh, circadian rhythms and can inhibit uh, like sleep hormones. So uh, we get too much blue light, uh, especially at nighttime when, when the sun has set and we get too little of the red light. So uh, using some uh, maybe red light devices in the evening or at any, any other time of the day can just uh, you know, bring you back into balance. 
Now, is there a certain hormonal uh, response to the red light when you are using it? And how much time should somebody sit in front of it? Because obviously it could go the other direction, right? If you have one of those sitting at your desk all day, then you might trip things the other way. Uh, well, certainly you could, uh, but uh, it's uh, hard to get, uh, let's say, it's hard to overdo it unless you have like this full panel, you know, this full uh, juve panel or something. Uh, uh, unless you, you know, th that's, that's those big panels you should uh, use only for maybe like uh, 10 to 20 minutes a day. Um, but if you use like the smaller ones with the light just, you know, hitting your eyes, maybe a feet away, the, then uh, that's, that's not going to be a problem. Problem. Uh, so like even if you were even if you were to be outside in the sun, you would always get uh, the red light in some amounts, uh, you know, as long as there's daylight, uh, you would get it, uh, not maybe, you get it less in the morning and you get more of it in the evening when the sun is setting. Uh, but you would always get some aspects of the red light uh, and even like orange light uh, from the sunlight. So it doesn't inherently have like two, two like negative side effects if it's, you know, within a reasonable distance. Yeah. And that's one thing I also noticed you were talking about blue light and sleep as so many people are looking at their phone, including myself, which I'm getting out of the habit. I have it actually turning off at a certain time every night so that I don't look at it. But people are like looking at their phone constantly looking at computer screens all day. And then they go to bed by like loading their brain down with information, first of all, by like looking through whatever they're looking through, social media, emails, but they're also bombarding themselves with blue light, which is helping them not fall asleep. Yeah, the uh, blue light is going to uh, inhibit uh, melatonin production. Uh, melatonin is the sleep hormone. And um, usually we get blue light in the morning, which is good for like waking up and uh, starting the day. So you need blue light in the morning. Like you should maybe go outside uh, if it's possible uh, in the morning after waking up to kind of get this blue light into your eyes and start the circadian rhythm. But in the evening, um, like an hour or so before bed, you don't want that blue light because it's going to stop melatonin. And uh, research does show that, uh, you know, blue light exposure or artificial light exposure at night uh, before bed, you, like increases sleep onset, uh, increases the time people wake up and just reduces overall uh, sleep quality and the deep sleep especially. So um, you can avoid that or circumvent that by like using these different filters um, on the uh, screens, like uh, on um, on, uh, on the computer, there's this uh, Flux or uh, Iris software. Uh, on uh, Apple, it's also a Flux. And uh, on Twilight or on, on Android, it's a Twilight uh, with this, it's going to automatically calibrate the uh, screen um, brightness to be like more red and uh, orange in the evening. And of course, there's like these uh, blue light blocking glasses as well that uh, have like this uh, orange uh, lens so it's going to filter out the harmful blue light. So you get only like this red and uh, orange. So that's a question I have. You see it advertised a lot. And I've been wanting to ask a professional about this. You'll see people with regular glasses that are clear. They are not tinted in any color and they claim to be a blue light blocking glass. Is that, is that actually blocking the correct uh, a spectrum of blue or it do you need to have a glass that is actually tinted uh yeah there are like these uh see-through lenses as well and uh they, they usually they're used uh, during the daytime to avoid uh, like eye strain when you're working on a computer uh 
and they do filter out like some of the blue lights, but you know, I would, I would think so that uh, they're not going to completely uh, filter out all the blue lights because uh, there's a like specific uh, range of the blue light that is going to inhibit uh, the, uh, the melatonin production. And it's between like 400 to 550 nanometers. So there's also like some aspects of green light uh, that uh, does also inhibit melatonin. So, uh, you know, you could, you, I definitely uh, see value in using maybe like the see-through lenses, but if I were to be like completely sure, then I would use um, like the uh, orange lenses uh, at least like an hour before bed. So usually it takes like maybe in 20 minutes or something uh, to start the body or to allow the body to start uh, reproducing the melatonin again, uh, once you've been exposed to blue light, but also like maybe like there's also the psychosomatic aspects of it so that uh, Although you may not be getting like the specific uh, blue light wavelengths, but you're still experiencing the blue light as if you are, uh, because you know the see-through lenses, you can see, you can still see blue things, and you can see the artificial light. Uh, although it gets filtered out to a certain extent, you still experience, and you can create this uh, placebo response. I think that could be like a one a, one option. So, is there a like if you're a person that works on a computer or me? I'm exposed to blue light a lot because we have curing lights in my I work in dentistry and we are curing things with UV lights uh, materials. So is, would there be a problem with wearing something like that all time, like during the day frequently, would it knock off your rhythms if you were wearing it more than before bedtime? Uh, well, if you were to use like the orange lens, uh, then probably. So you, you shouldn't use the orange lens uh, during the daytime. You should only use it uh, in the evening. Okay. Uh, but when it comes to like the artificial light, like the you know really bright LEDs and UV lights, uh, then uh, for them I would still you know it would be still better to kind of use at least some uh, protection, like even if it's the see-through lens um, during the daytime, uh, because you know too much of the blue light is still going to be uh, harmful uh, in terms of uh, causing oxidative stress and the damage to your cells and mitochondria. So uh, it can you know excessive blue light exposure in studies can induce like uh, insulin resistance. Uh, like Alzheimer's or, uh, you know, like also like le leptin resistance kind of off offsets the appetite signaling and those things. So yeah, it, it, it can be uh, problematic if you get it uh, too much. And if you are like working in a you know very artificially lit environment, then uh, the see-through lenses are uh, really amazing for that. But, you know, if uh, but it's also maybe good to take some breaks from it. So you should always like try to take uh, breaks during daytime to go outside and get the natural sunlight at least like every every hour or so to maybe at least a few minutes and i'm going to reverse just a little bit here you're saying wake up in the morning and get outside get to where you can get a real real light and that just reminds me of myself like in the summertime when it's nice out i'm up with the sun and i'm on my bicycle when the sun is coming up and i feel great but in the wintertime, when I'm not doing that and there's so much less light, I almost kind of get like a depression going on. And <laughs> right. I feel like that might have something to do with that. Yeah, for sure. Like the uh, circadian rhythms also regulate your mood and uh, neurotransmitters and, you know, seasonal affective disorder is a pretty, you know, a common thing of not getting enough uh, sunlight and uh, yeah, during the winter it's hard to uh, get it, uh, especially in the morning, if, if like the sun is rising, uh, even like a few hours after waking up. But, uh, you know, there are also like these uh, sad lamps or, you know, these uh, seasonal effective circadian clocks or something that uh, automatically try to calibrate 
the brightness uh, as you wake up, so kind of mimic the sunrise. So there's uh, these clocks as well as these lamps that um, you know have this uh, bright light uh, in your face in the morning. Awesome. Now, I guess this gets me to another thing. A lot of people like to go and suntan in the wintertime because they feel like that is giving them that the UV stuff that they're missing in the winter. What it, What is your thoughts on that? Uh, I think... Uh, like in small amounts uh, where every once in a while that can be okay. Uh, it's not going to inherently be, you know, bad. And you, you may get like some benefits from that, or you, know, you may, you know, stimulate some vitamin D synthesis uh, from that. Uh, but yeah, you probably shouldn't do it like maybe every week or something. You should do it like maybe only a few times a month or something. Gotcha. That was just something that popped in my head because I hear a lot of people that, that they do tan in the winter time because they're trying to keep that, feel good, warm feeling going on, I guess. So yeah. Uh, so we kind of jumped down a rabbit hole there a little bit with the light, which was great. Um, but let's kind of reverse here a little bit into the opposite of sauna, which is cold baths and cold plunges. You're seeing it more and more. People are taking ice baths in their backyards and water troughs. People have freezers. I don't know if you know of Brad Kearns, but he has a freezer he gets into every single day. Uh, it's like a just an old chest freezer outside. Uh, it's like 40 degrees or something. And he gets into that thing every day. And so it's becoming more and more of a thing. Also cryotherapy. What are your thoughts on all of that? Uh, yeah, the cold can also have quite uh, great benefits. Uh, so uh, usually the benefits are related to just um, also like lowering inflammation and uh, like, especially some studies show that it can be, like a useful therapy for like this arthritic pain as well as neural neural inflammation. Uh, other benefits include um, like activation. It's going to like raise your metabolic rate as well as make you more insulin sensitive and uh, increase the amount of brown fat you have. So brown fat is considered like the healthy fat. Uh, so and white fat is the unhealthy fat uh, that is used primarily just for um, energy balance. Whereas brown fat can also increase like your um, heat production as well as insulin sensitivity. So in the cold, you start to, first of all, you start to burn some of the white fat and some of the white fat gets also converted into brown fat. So just you, you, you'll be um, like more resilient against the cold and uh, other stressors as a result of that. And your like metabolic health uh, gets better as well. And, you know, the cold will by, by itself, it's also going to lower your blood sugar uh, because you're going to like burn you know, energy for uh, the heat production. And uh, yeah, usually the cold, yeah, it can be just a general way of increasing this hormesis or this stress resilience. Right. And so that's another thing that, that make has got my wheels spinning here. So I know pe more and more people are wearing continuous glucose monitors to monitor what spikes their blood sugar ways to mitigate that maybe by eating protein or fat first before they eat their carbohydrates, uh, or maybe taking a walk after dinner, all these things. So would it be a logical thing to be like, okay, I ate a more carby dinner, I should maybe take a cold plunge? Does it work in that particular order? Is it, is it something or is it something that has to be built over time? Uh, well, I think uh, it would work, you know, even if you do it for the first time, so, uh, you know, the difference is that if you're not used to it, then it can also like increase or it's going to be tougher first and is also going to release more stress, uh, increase stress and cortisol. 
So uh, in that sense, um, you know, you still have to be like somewhat careful with it. But uh, yeah, like you could uh, generally um, like lower your blood sugar as well, similar to walking. Uh, if you were to take like a cold shower uh, or, or like a cold bath uh, after eating, uh, after finishing a, a dinner. But, you know, the thing is also that if it, if it becomes like an overbearing stressor, then you can also like go into the sympathetic nervous system state where you're like stressed out and uh, that is going to shut down your digestion and is also going to make you slightly insulin resistant. So it's like a double-edged sword. So like in, in some amounts, it can be beneficial, but uh, it's very easy to make it uh, too excessive and uh, backfire at you. I'm glad that you said that. That's a, you, that's a great way you just explain that. So uh, I like the double-edged sword analogy because that happens in a lot of these things where we're trying to help ourselves, but we end up actually hurting ourselves because we overdo it instead of just taking the median road. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like everything, everything has like, a, uh, let's say the costs and uh, benefits and every, almost everything has like this uh, bell curve when it comes to like this hormesis. So like exercise, if you're not exercising enough, you're sedentary, then you are, you know, increasing your risk of these many diseases, metabolic diseases. If you exercise in moderation, you're in the, like the uh, Goldilocks zone, you're uh, healthy and you have good body composition. If you exercise too much, then that also like increases stress and uh, eventually leads to like breakdown. And, you know, the same can apply to fasting. If you're eating uh, all the time over the course of, uh, you know, 16 hours from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed, then you're never experiencing fasting. You're never getting the benefits from it. And you are maybe potentially increasing the risk of these metabolic diseases as well. Uh, if you do some form of this timer state eating, you know, you skip a meal or you confine your eating window a little bit, you get uh, most of the benefits. And if you do like this <laughs> crazy long fasts all the time, uh, all the time, then um, that's also too much stress and uh, bad. So everything has like the similar bell curve where too much is, is not, uh, too much is bad. Uh, too little is also not good. And uh, in moderation somewhere is, um, is the way where you want to go. And you know, how much is too much, how much is too little, how much is just enough is very also context dependent. And it uh, varies between individuals and it depends on their like age, their uh, general fitness, their, their level of uh, stress resilience, their metabolic health and uh, nutrient status. So all these things have to kind of um, have to be taken into account. So there's never this uh, one size fits uh, all solution or answer. Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. I see it show up in every aspect, right? We see it in fitness. We see it in nutrition. We see it here in the biohacking world. Uh, everybody thinks there's only one way to do things. And I think there are so many other factors and we are all so unique and individual that we have to keep that in mind when we are trying to uh, work on our health. So I'm glad that you said that. So what are some other ways that we can achieve metabolic autophagy, cellular autophagy? What, what are other things we can do besides saunas, fasting, cold? Um, yeah, like maybe, maybe these uh, dietary phytonutrients are pretty uh, researched about that. So uh, like uh, coffee, as well as caffeine itself will uh, stimulate autophagy. So the polyphenols from coffee and the caffeine is uh, turning on the body's, let's say, defense mechanisms because, like you know, it does create this small stress, like the caffeine and the polyphenols. They're not uh, like inherently uh, 
digestible, so to say, that they are creating some small amount of stress and, you know, the body responds to it by turning on all these uh, defense uh, mechanisms and antioxidant pathways, one of them being autophagy and others being like uh, NRF2 and uh, so leading, leading to glutathione. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's these uh, dietary uh, phytonutrients, um, dark pigments, uh, polyphenols, uh, berries, as well as these herbs and spices like uh, cayenne pepper, turmeric, ginger, uh, rosemary, all, all those things. Right. And so now do you recommend with the caffeine not doing it as soon as you wake up in the morning? Is there a, a golden time to, to take that on? Because I know a lot of people talk about it being too much of a stressor in the morning when people first wake up. Yeah, like I, I would say that uh, you should wait at least like a few hours uh, after waking up before uh, consuming caffeine because uh, your uh, cortisol levels are the highest uh, once you wake up because uh, it's supposed to uh, wake you up and give you energy. So if you add caffeine on top of that, then that can be easily uh, take you to the uh, excessive zone. So you get the, like the jitters or anxiety or just heart palpitations or just uh, you know stressed out because of uh, tipping yourself over the top. So uh, yeah, waiting a few hours, like maybe one to two hours uh, after waking up uh, and then consuming some caffeine, like you can, you can easily avoid that. So could that be said for other things too, as far as like sauna, cold plunge, other stressors? Is it best to wait because your cortisol is a little higher when you wake up? Is it best to wait a few hours before you partake in any of those things? Uh, well, uh, you you could, uh, but uh, like let's say it depends on what intensity it is. So uh, if you go for a walk after waking up, then uh, that can be like a good thing because, uh, you know, it's not the intense exercise and it's going to maybe like burn some uh, uh, glucose from your bloodstream so it can lower your blood sugar because like your blood sugar is also going to rise in the morning because of cortisol. So uh, you, if you go for a walk, you can lower that blood sugar and avoid, you know, maybe problems from that uh, also like a cold, cold shower for a few, uh, maybe 30 seconds or one minute or two minutes, that can also be a good way to achieve a similar effect. Uh, usually people, I don't know, like a lot of people who go to the sauna in the morning, but, you know, theoretically it could work and it's not going to inherently cause like a massive amount of stress uh, from that. So these smaller, smaller stressors can, um, can be uh, beneficial. Right. Thank you for clarifying that. Cause I was thinking, Hmm, well, there are other stressors too. And I know like when it comes to people with adrenal problems and things like that, they say to wait on definitely the coffee, uh, if any, until later on in the morning. So that's why what sparked that, uh, that, so let's talk about resveratrol, um, and what it is and what, how it also contributes to cellular autophagy. Yeah. Well, resveratrol is, um, very uh, known anti-aging molecule or said to have these anti-aging benefits and uh, it was discovered or like it's, it's anti-aging benefits were discovered by David Sinclair who, uh, who you know, uh, realized or found that it uh, resveratrol turns on a particular group of proteins in the body called sirtuins and sirtuins are uh, considered longevity genes that um, improve longevity as well as a uh, improve metabolic uh, health, uh, lower like triglycerides, lower, lower blood sugar, uh, improve insulin sensitivity. And uh, also uh, resveratrol promotes autophagy as well through uh, the sirtuin activation. And yeah. usually you get like resveratrol 
a natural you get from these uh, dark red and uh, you know dark dark red berries, uh, fruit in the skin of fruits, as well as a red wine. That's what I was going to ask: was how red wine played into that? Because I was thinking that it contributed as well. So uh, yeah. awesome. So if there was anything that you wanted to communicate to someone that where they could start taking a step towards improving their health by doing some biohacking, what would you suggest they do? Uh, well, I, I think, uh, I think, uh, yeah, you shouldn't, uh, you, or you should realize you, you don't need to go into the very cutting edge things or the fancy things. Uh, you should first start with the basics and the fundamentals, like uh, getting your diet fixed, uh, exercising regularly, uh, doing some form of maybe hot and cold therapy. And yeah, definitely focusing a lot on just improving your sleep because um, like no nootropic is going to work um, if your sleep is bad, uh, or at least it's not going to be fully optimized to its potential. So yeah, like the fundamentals are still the most important things. And then uh, you, you, you can like start to experiment and add on top of it. I love that. You can't fix anything with just a supplement. And I see that happening a lot in society now. Somebody gets sick and they're like, okay, well, I've just started taking turmeric and probiotics and all these things, but they're still eating horrible foods for them. And it's like, well, you kind of have to fix the whole thing. You can't just throw something at it. But that's kind of the society that we have grown up in, right? If you have a headache, you take ibuprofen. That's what you thought, right? Not, not figure out why the headache started, but here is how we treat it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, just like supplements can be a quick fix, uh, but it's not going to be like the long-term uh, solution. And uh, like, once you stop taking a supplement or like a medication, then you're going to just go back to where you were. So the more sustainable approach would be to uh, make sure that you have like the fundamentals uh, solid. Absolutely. So if my listeners want to come find you, how do they do that? Yeah, well, uh, my website is uh, seamland.com and uh, on all the social media platforms, I'm also uh, seamland. And you have lots of podcasts out there. You have multiple books that are wonderful. Uh, what are some of the books that you have out there that they could look into? Yeah, the, the one that we talked about is uh, Metabolic Autophagy. Um, I also have Stronger by Stress, which talks about uh, hormesis and stress. And uh, my latest one is uh, The Immunity Fix uh, with uh, Dr. James Antonio. Well, I'm excited. I'm going to look those up for myself. I'm going to put all your information in the show notes as well so people can look into you a little more. You have a lot of great information out there. And I really appreciate you spending a few minutes with me this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was uh, fun talking with you.